I have uh, discovered, unfortunately, uh, mostly through personal experience, that it's easy to misread situations and certainly mis- easy to misread people. Most of us realize that men and women are different. As a result, we think differently, we see things differently, and we react accordingly. Also, children have a unique perspective, re- uh, you know, relating to the world around them from a child's point of view. And I like the story that I heard recently I want to share with you about a little boy who had uh, bought his teacher a Christmas gift. And it was a coffee cup with her name engraved on the outside, and it also had the title, World's Greatest Teacher. And if that wasn't special enough, it was also filled with the little boy's favorite toy soldiers. And so when she gave the teacher this particular gift, she was obviously uh, pleased to receive the gift, but she was a little bit concerned and, and didn't understand what was going on as far as the toy soldiers were concerned. And so she asked him, she said, Jimmy, I appreciate the gift, but what, I don't understand the, the thing about the soldiers in the cup. And he said, well, well, you know, it's to help get your day started off right. And she smiled and then she said, okay, but I'm not real sure how, how does these toy soldiers in my coffee cup going to get my day started off right. And he said, you know, you know that song? And she said, I, I don't think I do, Jimmy. What song is that? She says that, he said that song, the best part of waking up is soldiers in your cup. <laughs> then she got it. You know... It's interesting is that, you know, the point is quite often, you know, in the study of the Bible, specifically prophecy, uh, can be just like little Jimmy's view of life. We see things from a child's point of view. And uh, that's why it's critical that um, we heed the Apostle Paul's challenge to Timothy, where in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we see these words. He said to Timothy, he said, be diligent. He said to be diligent to prove yourself or present yourself, approve to God. As a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately or rightly dividing the word of truth. said to be diligent, which requires that there's a little bit of work that takes place. And oftentimes we pass over the hard work because we simply don't have the time nor the desire, nor do we want to put in the effort to dig in and really find out some of God's great truths for our life. He says, but to be diligent, and that's a command. It's a command that carries great force, to be diligent. To be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, handling accurately or rightly dividing the word of truth. As a leather worker, the Apostle Paul would understand the term uh, to rightly divide because it had to do with working with pieces of leather or pattern. And what he would do is he would take certain patterns of leather and when he would put the patterns together, once he would lay them out properly, then whatever it was that he was going to make from that leather, whether it was a tent or whatever, would fall into place. Oftentimes our study of the Bible is just like that, where we rightly divide or take the pieces that are revealed to us throughout all of the Bible, we put them together and we have a composite. If you have little children, you understand exactly what that's like when they're working with a jigsaw puzzle. You take the certain pieces and you try to get the border and the framework and you put it all together and you've got a complete picture once you take all of those pieces and they fall into place. Oftentimes, in the case specifically with prophecy, that's exactly what we have to do to get the complete picture that God wants to reveal to us. We take the pieces that are revealed throughout the Word of God, we're able to put a composite together, and then have everything that God wants for us as far as a particular prophecy. Now, what's to our advantage or our benefit is that fortunately for us, we've got the complete work of God. We've got the entire Word of God at our disposal. So where we are reading, for example, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, where we're going to continue in our study of the book of Daniel. But where we see that certain things are revealed to Daniel, we will find later in the word of God that these mysteries that were revealed to him 
are not mysteries to us because God fills in the pieces. For example, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints had no concept of the idea of the church. They were convinced that God's people were the the nation of Israel, that God's plan was for the nation of Israel. We see revealed throughout the prophecy as far as the 70 weeks of Daniel was concerned, this great gap that's taken place, which we find ourselves in the present age, and that's called the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the church is revealed as a mystery that up to that point in time, they didn't understand. And so as Daniel was looking ahead to the future, there were many things that he didn't recognize and God didn't reveal to him that are revealed to us as we subsequently have the complete word of God. And that's important to understand because it helps us to to see exactly what it is that God wants us to know. So with that in mind, in Daniel chapter 10, we're going to take a look at this incredible passage that gives us insight as to some of the truths that God wants us to understand. And as you will see, we're going to need help from other parts of God's word in, in an effort to be able to better understand what's taking place in this particular passage. In chapter 10, verse 1, we read these words. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message, and he had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. As we look at this passage, there are several truths that emerge. The first one that we're going to take a look at is the effect that this vision has upon Daniel. It's important for us as God gives us a backdrop or background as to what exactly it is that Daniel was going through at this particular time. We're immediately told, as has been important throughout this entire study, God gives us specific people, specific dates, specific places for the purpose of being able to answer the liberal critics that would come along later in history and say, hey, this stuff can't be real or it had to be written after the events because it so miraculously gives us details of future events that it couldn't be anything other than written after the facts because if it was written before the facts, we cringe and hesitate to have to deal with that possibility and that reality. If indeed these were written before they happened, then we have no choice but to believe that the Bible is as it claims to be the written word of God, that there is a God, that we are accountable, that he is in control and would have to humble ourselves before him. And God knows that many people and many men and women in their hearts would rather die before they would ever have to humble themselves before God. And so God gives us specific times and places and dates to be able to, contra- to, to, uh, to, to uh, conflict with those who would come along later and say, hey, well, this couldn't have happened until after the facts, and that's why they're so accurate. Hell no, not at all. They happened exactly as God says. It was in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, this revelation was given to Daniel. We know the third year of, the king, uh, the, of Cyrus's reign, the king of Persia, was in the year 534 B.C. This is about four years after the 70 weeks vision that we've already took, taken a look at in Daniel chapter 9. So we know that's about four years after the fact. It's in 534 B.C. We know that the nation of Israel was taken into captivity and taken to Babylon in 605. We know that from chapter 1. It's called retention. We like to keep all these things in mind because God builds on these things. And uh, so you might want to maybe make a New Year's resolution that I will begin to retain that which I've already learned. And we will build upon it. And uh, it's fascinating how that works. Um, But anyway, and, and that's exactly what took place. So here it was, 605. This is about 71, 72 years after after Daniel was taken into captivity. So it means that at the earliest, he was 15 to 17 years of age, and 72 years later, he's either between the ages of 85 and 90, so he's an older man at this particular point in time. All of that we know because God gives us the information. 
this revelation that was given to him is a revelation. It's the final vision that he'll have. It'll take us through the end of the book of Daniel. It covers chapters 10, 11, and 12. So we're going to be dealing with this uh, through the duration of our study. It says that its message was true, which we can bank on because the word of God is truth. Jesus said, sanctify God's people in truth. Father, your word is truth. The word of God is true. It is accurate. And Jesus Christ is a reflection of God's truth. He says, for I am the way, I am the truth manifested in human flesh. It is true. What God says is true. You can bank on it. You can count on it. It'll come to pass exactly as he says that it will. And that's what troubles so many as they read through the book of Daniel. Everything happens exactly as God says that it would. It happened in the past exactly as it said. And it'll happen in the future exactly as God says. And we need to deal with it whether we like it or not. It's true and it's reliable and it has proven to be so. And it was a message that concerned a great war which we'll talk about in the next couple of chapters. It says, the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. And he says, at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. He was in mourning. We're not told exactly why he was in mourning, but we can speculate. And I think the speculation will be fairly accurate. And that is this. If you recall, in the first year of Cyrus, he issued a mandate or a decree that, that the Jews could leave captivity and go back to the promised land, the glorious land it's called throughout the passage. They could go back and rebuild Jerusalem. If you remember that, that was in the first year of Cyrus. Now we're in the third year of Cyrus, and guess what? Only a handful of people took him up on the offer to leave captivity or to leave Persia or the Chaldean Empire at that point and head back 800 miles south to go back to Jerusalem. Only a handful of people did that under Zerubbabel. Now I want you to stop and think about something. Why would Daniel be in mourning that God's people would not take up this offer and go back to the land that God had promised them? If you recall anything from the book of Nehemiah, you realize that Nehemiah, as a cupbearer of the king, was also saddened and was also in mourning before the king. And when the king said, what is it that saddened you? You've never been sad in my presence before. And he said very specifically that the walls around the city are in rubble and the city has not been rebuilt. And that's the city of my fathers. That's our, that is our land that God promised us. And he was in mourning over that. Now, for us to understand in our culture today, probably the best way for me to understand it is this. It would be as a parent whose child or children have compromised their walk with God to the point where they have become very comfortable being complacent in the world in which we live. You see, God's people became very comfortable in captivity. What's fascinating is you look back on the history of man and notice, for example, in the book of Exodus where God's people were in captivity under Pharaoh... They hated every minute of it. They were used as slave labor. They couldn't wait to be freed. And then when they were freed and they had to overcome certain obstacles, the thing they complained most about in Egypt was the thing that they looked back on with the greatest anticipation because when they were starving, they said, at least in Egypt, we had leeks and onions and all that kind of junk. And the same thing before, they complained, we're eating this stuff every day. And all of a sudden, when they were following and trusting God and there were some obstacles in their life, they wanted to fall back immediately into that which they were comfortable with. God's people have to be very careful that we do not become comfortable in this world. And the reason for it is very simple, because we are not of this world. The Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven that God has something greater planned for God's people, and yet many of us become owners in this world instead of those who are just passing through. 
we, be, we become very comfortable. Uh, when Linda and I were dealing with those who played professional sports when they were here with the Rams or now with the Angels or whatever, it's fascinating to see the difference in mentality between an owner and a renter. There are those who come, they play in a certain city, and they just rent. They live in a modest, simple apartment because they own their home somewhere else. They know they are here for just a season of time. And if it's baseball, it might be from April through September. When it was football, it might have been from August to January. But the point is this. They never got too comfortable here because this was not their home. And there's a difference between being a renter and an owner. And seeing what God's people have to become very cautious of and very aware of is this isn't what it's all about. God has a purpose and a reason for us to be here. It's to be salt. It's to be light. It's to make an impact on this world for the kingdom of God. But this isn't our home. This is what it's all about. There's something better that lies ahead. And so Daniel was in mourning, he was broken, he was torn up over the fact that God's people had gotten so complacent and so used to being in captivity that they settled for something less than God's best. God had something great for them if they had only chosen to trust him to pick up and to go back to where they should have been in the land that God promised them. And Daniel mourned over that. And I know as a parent, I have mourned and my wife has mourned and we have wept over friends and family and children who have decided to make choices that just aren't right before God. And it has broken our heart. And I know exactly what he's going through, and I think some of you do as well. God has our best interest at heart. He's motivated by great love. He gives us his word to give us direction in life so we know which way to go, the choices that we need to make. And when we settle for something less than that, we should mourn. We should mourn. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. He didn't even take a bath. For three weeks. And I don't think that's far off to speculate that that's what he was mourning over. Because why? Because we have the word of God when we rightly divide it. We know that Nehemiah weeped and mourned for the same reason. Also, there's a second thing that comes out in this particular passage and that's this. Daniel was in prayer and he was praying and God did not get an answer to him for three weeks. Which is fascinating as we'll see through the chapter. And it was exactly three weeks before God got an answer to Daniel. If you recall from Daniel chapter 9. The moment that Daniel started to pray for an understanding of God's plan. He immediately got an answer. So Daniel started to get used to God immediately answering his prayers. And now Daniel is praying and he doesn't hear an answer from God. And it goes on for one week and two weeks and finally three weeks. Before he finally got an answer. And maybe he was mourning over that. Hey, God, are you still there? Do you still hear me? I mean, the last time you sent an angel immediately with an answer, this time I've been praying for three weeks and you've made me wait. And we're going to find out why that was. There's a great spiritual conflict that was taking place that hindered that answer from coming to Daniel. And so as we look at all this, we can put it together. It's also fascinating for those of you who had a question about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, where it talked about, or verse 2, where it talked about the 70 years of Daniel. It's interesting that some of you say, well, how do we really know there was, uh, you know, 70 years and that it's actually 490 years, that it's 77s instead of just 70 years? Well, the answer is given to us in chapter 10, verse 2, where he said that in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. Literally, the phrase is three weeks of days. You follow that? Three sevens of days, which is three weeks. And so the wording, the terminology is completely different. That's how we know we can be accurate when we say we're talking about a 490-year period of time versus, in this case, literally three weeks of seven or three weeks. And that's the effect that it had on Daniel. Now, the fascinating thing is, and just a remarkable passage starts to unfold as we go through this. And look at the encounter now that Daniel has, the second aspect of this vision, after we see the effect. But look at this encounter that Daniel has with a man who is clothed in linen. 
In verses 4 through 9, we read these words. It says, And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man who was dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. His body also was like burl or chrysolite. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. We're given the exact time and place and the date that this vision takes place. It's on the 24th day of the first month, which in the Jew- Jewish calendar is the, uh, is the month of Nisan. Uh, we're told that he was standing by the great river, the Tigris. He looked up, and there before me was a man that was dressed in linen. A certain man is now brought before him. What's interesting as we look at this is up to this particular point, Daniel has always had visions and this revelation was different than the previous visions because up to that point, what were the visions of? They were of multi-metallic uh, images. Uh, if you recall, they were of beasts. Uh, they were of a little horn that arose out of the four horns. And up to this point, everything had to do with, uh, with the symbolism that, that revolved around different items. Now, for the first time, he's given a vision of a certain man. Now the question is, who is this man? And fortunately, as I said before, for us, we've got the entire word of God that we can look at. Otherwise, we would be in, we'd be in deep trouble. Because as we look at this particular passage, we're, we're given a description of this man, but we're not really sure who he is. And so as we look at this, it's important as we go through it, who is this certain man or this man that now Daniel sees before him? And we have tremendous help that's given to us if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, we see a description in this particular passage that almost in every detail parallels that of the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 10. In Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 12, we need to read these words. Now, this is John speaking. He says that, I, John, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. It says, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like the flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it was been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, Don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. In this passage, we see a vision, as we'll be told, of Jesus Christ. And there's a noticeable change that takes place from what the four Gospels describe uh, when they speak of Jesus. Now, what we have here is a picture of Jesus as he is now, currently, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is not pictured in any uh, robe of humanity. 
He's pictured in the garments of royalty and of deity. He's no longer a humble, suffering servant willing to endure the agony and the shame and the death on a Roman cross. But he is now the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has risen from the dead. And the glory that he had before he came into the world as a baby in a manger is the glory that is now reflected as we see him in all of his glory and his greatness. What's incredible about this is the brilliance of his majesty uh, is sometimes downplayed and oftentimes downplayed in our culture today. And we need to take a look at that because this is the same vision. It is a picture of the glory and the greatness that is given to Jesus Christ. We know from Philippians chapter 2, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, of the greatness and the glory that has been bestowed upon Christ. The vision that John has of a resurrected Christ is the same in, in 95 AD, is the same vision that Daniel has of Jesus Christ in 534 BC. And it's a wonderful picture of who Christ is. And it also is something that we need to look at and ask ourselves the question, what is my vision of Jesus Christ? How do I personally see Christ today? Is it the same picture that we have here? Before we look at this appearance and look at the similarities between the two, there's something that's pointed out. Look at verse 13 of Revelation 1. <clears throat> it says, In the middle of the lampstands, which we know is the seven churches, because it's given to us in verse 20, it says, One like as Son of Man, the eternal humanity of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that He became man for us. He was one like the Son of Man. And that he might know human life, that he might experience uh, what we go through as human beings. Turn back to the book of Hebrews, a couple of books back in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 17. In verse 17 it says this, Therefore, speaking of Christ, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become flesh so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in order that he may make propitiation, which means a sacrifice acceptable for God on our behalf. The second thing is we notice in, in chapter 4, look at verse 15, we know that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace in our time of need. What's fascinating is we look at the Son of Man was the favorite title that Jesus used of himself. And it also has special meaning for Bible students of prophecy because if you remember in Daniel chapter 7, we had a vision of the Ancient of Days speaking of God himself sitting on the throne and one coming before him was what? One like the Son of Man. And so as we look at this, the parallels between Daniel and Revelation are incredible in many areas. But the point of the matter is this, that Jesus Christ became man so that he could die on the cross and make a sacrifice that would be acceptable for, uh, before God. Now, <clears throat> we also need to recognize this, that Jesus Christ had a change in condition when he became flesh. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It goes on to talk about everything that was created came into being through Him and apart from Him. Nothing has come into being that has come into being. We know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ also created the heavens and the earth, and nothing came into being that didn't come into being unless he was involved in creation. What does that tell you? That God, as Jesus said, that God and the Father are one. John chapter 14. When Philip said, show us the way of the Father, what was, Peter, what was Jesus' answer? 
Philip, how long have I been with you? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I and the Father am one. There's only one God manifested himself in three ways, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God. And all three of them created the universe according to the Bible, and yet there's only one God. It's important that we recognize something here, and that's this. Jesus Christ did not come into existence the day that he took upon flesh in Bethlehem in a manger. He had always existed as the eternal God, and then he became flesh. He took on flesh. We need to recognize and understand that that wasn't the moment of his existence. He had always existed. So why is that important? It's important to realize because Daniel, 534 years before Christ ever took on flesh, saw the resurrected Christ in all of his glory. Why? Because it was who he is from eternity, and he still is to this day. In Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John went to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what happened there? Jesus lifted back the veil that was covering him. And they saw him in all of his pre-incarnate glory. He's the eternal God. It's important that we recognize and understand that. As we look at this picture, we need to realize how important it is that we see Jesus for who he really is. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that Jesus humbled himself or emptied himself. It's called the doctrine of kenosis, and it involves three things. The first thing it involves is this, that he veiled his pre-incarnate glory. We saw that in Matthew chapter 17. The apostles, the disciples did not see Jesus as he truly is. He was veiled by human flesh. The second thing, he's condescended himself to the point where he took on flesh. Think about the God of all glory sticking himself in one of these things. I mean, it's amazing to me. I mean, I wouldn't choose to do that if I had another option. Every time I try to go out to run anymore, I'm thinking, there's got to be a better way. All these things about losing weight, getting shaped, body and soul, spirit and this and that. It's like, you know, no one raised their hand because no one cares anymore. Look at all of you. <clears throat> you can't see what I can see. But the point is this. It's like, can you imagine putting himself in a position where he clothed himself, robed himself with humanity? And the last thing that was important to understand is this, that he also voluntarily did not use certain attributes that were his to be used as God Almighty. The stuff that he put up with on our behalf is unbelievable. And the question that I have is this, why in the world would he subject himself to all of that? Hebrews chapter 12, rightly dividing the word of God, we know this. And the reason that he did was that he despised the shame. He endured the pain. You know why? For the joy that was set before him. And that joy was our salvation. And that joy was his glory. That joy was that he would be given a name that was above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? He saw the end result. You say, why would God subject himself to that kind of treatment? Because that was his plan from the very beginning. And he sees the beginning as well as the end. And he knew how it was all going to turn out. And so for the joy that was set before him, he endured the pain. He despised the shame because he knew how it was all going to turn out. That's why. What's fascinating now is look at this appearance. And you're going to see some things that are just absolutely incredible. First of all, notice this. Notice his majesty. Uh, back to Revelation chapter 1. Look at this. It says, in the middle of the lamp stands a one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girding, uh, girded across his breast with a golden girdle. This robe that reached down to his feet. If you remember, Isaiah saw a vision of God, and the train of God, the robe of God, filled the tabernacle. The glory of God. It wasn't a tunic that was worn by a peasant. It was a gown that was worn by ro royal, royalty. Majesty. 
That's what we're talking about here. All of his majesty and majestic. He was majestically clothed. It was a robe also worn in Exodus 39 by the high priest. We have a high priest who knows all of our weaknesses. Fascinating. He had this robe that was on indicating that it was, it was royalty. He had this golden belt around him indicating the same thing. Uh, Jack Hayford in his song Majesty captures exactly the moment where he says, Majesty, worship his majesty. It says, unto Jesus be all glory, power, and praise. Majesty, kingdom authority, says flows from his, from his throne unto his own, his anthem raise. So exalt and lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come glorify Christ Jesus the King. Says majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, power, and praise. Majesty, worship his majesty. Jesus who died is now glorified. He's king of all kings. His robe and his belt indicate exactly that. That he is royalty. He is majesty. He is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. The second thing that we notice as we go through this vision is says that, that his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. Talking about his purity. Not only is he majestic, but he's also pure, the purity of God. It says here that he is pure. What's fascinating in Isaiah 118, listen to these words, where we see the same type of, uh, of terms that are used. It says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Bible talks about the cleansing that takes place of those who believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. Though our sins are like scarlet, Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, if we believe, will make us white as snow before God. Jesus Christ knew no sin. He had no sin. He was a perfect sacrifice, pleasing to God. That's why he died and shed his blood on the the cross, because he was the Messiah promised by God. You will name him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. That's why. And that's exactly what took place. The majesty, the purity of Jesus Christ, who died a sinless man, who died as God and man. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And it's hard to understand, but it's not hard to understand that that's what it says. The bottom line is this, that even Pilate, when Jesus was presented before him, he said, and who who finds any fault in you? Nobody. Pilate says, I find no fault in you either. You're an innocent sacrifice that's voluntarily going to the cross. For the Son of Man did not come to serve, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We see also a picture, if you go through this, it says that his eyes were like a flame of fire that has to do with authority and judgment. That Jesus Christ one day will come to judge the living and the dead. That's exactly what Philippians 2, chapter 2 has to say. That one day every person will stand before the majesty and the royalty and the great judge of all humanity and have to give an account for what they've done here on earth. For whether they've rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, whether they've accepted Him, and after that, what we did with that, after the period of time when we became Christians for the purpose of being rewarded by God, but every one of us, one day individually, will give an account of our life before God. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. That his eyes are like the eyes of fire. Look what it says. And his feet were like burnished bronze, which had to do with the offerings and the sacrifices when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Isn't that interesting? It's the same words that's used, the voice of a tumult or sounds of many waters. Listen to what the Bible has to say in uh, Psalm 29, 3 through 4. It says this, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters and the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. It goes on to say, And the voice of God is able to separate and split the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of God, you cannot mistake it when you hear the voice of God. It's amazing to me when people say, well, God spoke to me. No, he didn't. He just split your head. 
Now, if you're saying he spoke to you through his word when you were reading his word and he had something to say to you and you can show me where it says it and I say, okay, now you got something to talk about. If you say, I, I heard God speak to me, he would have blown your head off. You don't know much about God, do you? See, what's interesting as we go through all of this, everything revolves around Jesus Christ. In his right hand, he held seven stars, which are angels, which we see are messengers of God that are dispatched according to the will of God. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. He's the son of righteousness. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Now, let me ask you a question. What is your vision of Jesus Christ? How do you view him? See, far too many folks picture Jesus as a baby in a manger or some uh, loving, humble man, teacher, compassionate carpenter. He's healing the blind. He's healing the lame. He causes the dead to be raised from the dead. He feeds multitudes. And you know what? I, I, you know, how can anybody have a problem with that Jesus? Think about it. This world has no problem with that Jesus. Who would? But let me ask you a question. What was the purpose of all his signs and his wonders? Why did he do what he did? The word of God rightly divided. We learn in John chapter 20 these words. It says, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The miracles of Jesus Christ were not intended to improve the quality of human life. The miracles and signs of God were not intended to fill an empty spot in a human heart. The miracles and signs and wonders of Christ were not to add a spiritual dimension that may have been missing from the human experience. The signs and the wonders of Jesus Christ were given to us and written so that man would believe that he was Messiah. So that believing in him, we would have eternal life. That was the purpose. Everybody raised from the dead died again. Everybody healed that was lame got up and walked and they walked themselves right to the funeral home where they died again or they died, you know, for the first time. The point is every blind person they gave sight to end up dying. It wasn't to improve the quality of their life because there is no quality to this life. This life is running down. The clock is ticking. We're all going to die. Check it out. And you don't believe me? Read the obituaries every day. People all around you are dying. Some of you right here right now may be dead. We don't know it yet so everybody gets up to leave. You know, I don't know. You don't know. Who knows? What's going on here? See, what's interesting to me is the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, and then the, word, and, 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 and then the world changes everything. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through what? Uh, through the religion of your choice? Through works and doing good for your fellow man? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through um, uh, giving money to the poor? Through the uh, sincere belief of your choice? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And no other way. The world has a problem with that Jesus. The world has a problem with the Jesus who says, there is no other way to the Father but through me. The world has a problem with the Jesus that says, you know what, the gate is wide and broad that leads to destruction, but you must enter the narrow gate, which is faith in Christ and in him alone. Nobody has a problem with the hippie-looking dude Jesus. The doobie brother, Jesus is all right with me. <laughs> Nobody has a problem with him. The surfer dude with long hair and blue eyes which I've never seen a Jew yet that looked like that. 
but every picture of Jesus, he's a long hair, blue eyes, sandal, he's going to the beach, he's chilling out, telling everybody, hang loose, don't worry about it. Hey, you know what, as long as you're sincere, who really cares? And people want us to believe that that's the Jesus of the Bible. It is not. Not even close. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the picture that Daniel has is one of his majesty and his glory. Now let me also share with you what happened to, to, um, <clears throat> to John when he saw the vision of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. He fell on his knees like a dead man. What happens to Daniel when he sees this vision? He falls on his face like a dead man. Why? I want you to stop and think about something here for a second. The Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who leaned his head against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, the disciple whom Jesus said to Mary, woman, behold your son, man, behold your mother, and left Mary in the care of John, the disciple who was probably the closest person in Jesus' life in that inner circle of Peter, James, and John, that disciple, when he saw the resurrected Christ, fell at his face and worshipped him as a dead man. He was not buddy-buddy, chummy-chummy. We have uh, an unbelievably wrong view in our culture of Jesus Christ. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is resurrected in all of his glory. And the Bible says that one day he will come, he will take his stand here on this earth, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will judge righteously, because he sees all things. The Bible says that the eyes of God, nothing is hidden and bare from his sight, to whom we have to do, speaking again of judgment. He sees all things, and he judges righteously. Why? Because he doesn't miss anything. I want to be honest with you, as a parent sometimes, I don't judge correctly. Why? I only see certain bits and pieces. I only see things as they're revealed to me. And so therefore we make judgment calls based on what we know. But you know what? Sometimes we don't see the whole picture, do we? And so sometimes we can judge inappropriately or wrongly because we don't have the whole picture. But the problem is with God is this. He doesn't miss anything. And that's good news for all of us who will be judged by God. But what's interesting is go back to Daniel chapter 10 and notice this. It says that I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men who were with me didn't see it. I think that's kind of fascinating. Same thing happened to, you know, Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul saw a vision of, of Christ, but nobody else that was with him saw it. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? But I think what's important about that is we need to recognize this. And that is this. Hey, you know what? Hey, the only way you and I can ever come to see Jesus Christ for who he really is, and that's Savior and Lord, is if the Holy Spirit of God reveals that to us. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to Peter, who do people say I am? And they had the same answers. You're that doobie brother Jesus. You know, you're, uh, you're Elijah, you're John the Baptist, you're a prophet, you're a great man, you're a teacher, you're blah, 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 blah. And he said, I don't care. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You know what Jesus said to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You and I cannot come to see Jesus Christ for who he really is, Savior and Lord, unless God, the Spirit of God, reveals that truth to us. Why? Because salvation is all of God. 
And we need to recognize and understand this. You may be here and you don't see this Jesus. But the Bible says this, you can know him. For as many as received him, to them he gave privileges to be called children of God, those who believe in his name. You can know him. But the only way you can know him is this. If you have a broken and contrite heart before God and that you want to know him. God, I want to know. I want to be forgiven. I want to know whether you're real. I want to know whether this is all true or not. God, I, I, I need to know. And I come humbly before you and brokenhearted. God, I have to know. God says that that prayer, God will never despise. And he'll always receive that sinner who repents from his sin and turns to God for forgiveness. The reason the world doesn't see Jesus as he really is? Because of pride and arrogance. God, I don't need you. I don't need your forgiveness because I'm not that bad and I haven't done nothing wrong. Only problem is God sets a standard and says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of you are righteous, no, not one. So I don't really care what you think of yourself. God is saying that, you know what, you fall short of my standard. You need me. And it's a broken and contrite heart that says, oh, now I recognize it and you're right, I need you. And without you, I am lost for all of eternity. God, forgive me. I need to know Jesus Christ. I want to believe in Jesus Christ. I want to be forgiven for my sins. And God says, fine, for as many as received him. To them he gave the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. What's fascinating is that he was left alone. <clears throat> Here's my challenge for you this year, if you would so uh, choose to accept the challenge, and that's this. God does some of his best work in our life when we're left alone with him. You notice that? Daniel was left alone. And it was in that quiet time. Daniel prayed three times a day alone with God all of his life. Guy's almost 90 years old now, and that was a consistent di discipline and pattern in his life. I'm going to ask you a question you've got to ask yourself. And you know what's interesting about it is you, you can't bluff anybody with the answer because I already told you God sees everything. He knows exactly what you do, whether you want to admit it or not. But that's this. How many of you spend quiet time alone with God? I don't want to see your hands. I don't really care. It's between you and God. The bottom line is this. You know what? Moses spent quiet time alone with God. Abraham spent quiet time alone with God. Jeremiah spent quiet time alone with God. Paul spent two years in the desert alone with God, being trained by God, instructed by God in the Word of God. We see Daniel spending three, three times a day alone with God. I think what we need to ask ourselves the question is this. Am I willing to spend time alone with God? Why? Because God says you need to cease striving and know that I'm God. The only way you're going to know that he's God and the only way he's going to work in your heart is if you spend quiet time alone with him. And it's important that we recognize and understand that. And if you don't know how to do that, man, there's great devotional books. And if it's just five minutes or just ten minutes a day, spending time alone with God so he can just develop an intimate relationship with you in your life, it is going to be the best time that you've ever spent in your life. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that. It's important that we do that. I'm going to challenge you as we look forward to this new year. Listen to me. Intimacy always develops from time alone with one another. Isn't that true? I don't care if it's in your marriage, if it's with a child, if it's with friends. That relationship always develops when we spend quality time alone together. I'll give you an illustration. I'm still meeting with Matt. We meet every Saturday. Okay, I get to meet with him for an hour. Now, think about this as a guy. Okay, guys, you can relate. Gals, you won't understand. But you, you try. Here's the deal. The first time I go out there, I'm thinking, I'm going to meet with this kid for an hour. Okay, he comes out, he's shackled, we sit down at a table together, and we're going to spend an hour talking to one another. Two guys spending an hour face-to-face -face talking to each other. <laughs> I'm scared to death. What are you going to talk about for an hour? You know, what's fascinating is, that's the quickest hour of my week. 
Sometimes it goes for an hour and a half if they cut us a break or an hour and 40 minutes. But the interesting thing about it is, is I was always concerned that, you know, how am I going to fill an hour? And yet it goes by so fast. But some of us are so afraid to be alone with another individual that we don't really find out what a wonderful experience that could be. Some of us as, as spouses don't even spend time alone with one another or with our children and certainly not with our God. Some of the greatest experiences I have with God are the times I spend alone, quiet in my office, just with the door shut, just in the Word of God, praying and studying. Other times it's when I'm out running, taking, taking a run, and there's nothing to do but either dwell on God or think of the pain. <laughs> I'm sure that God understands, and He knows my weaknesses, so He honors that. But the point is, you know, the bottom line is, is that you know, we need to spend some time alone together with God. I challenge you to consider it. I challenge you to do it. And I challenge me to finish this next point in the next few minutes. You know what? I can do that. Can you hang around for five? Okay, good. Here's the explanation of the vision. It says, A hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you're highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words that I'm about to speak to you. And stand up, for now I've been sent to you. Speaking, This is an angel now that we're looking at. He says, And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind, here we go again, the day that you started to pray, to gain understanding and humble yourselves before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But check this out. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days or, the, or those three weeks. So what we find happening here is a fascinating look at what goes on behind the scenes in spiritual warfare. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, we're told that we should arm ourselves or to put on the full armor of God. Why? So that we can withstand the schemes or the strategies of the enemy. And it goes on to talk about the fact that our warfare is not carnal or against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers, the principalities, and it's against all the agencies of darkness, indicating what exactly as God says, that we are in a spiritual warfare. So for three weeks, the answer from God, as sent to a messenger of an angel, was hindered by, by this, this demonic angel or this demonic force that kept that answer from coming to Daniel as quickly as it did the first time. Now what's interesting, and the reason I want to get to this point is I want to try to tie it all together as we move forward, and that's this. We need to be aware of the strategies or the schemes of our enemy. Because if we're to put on the full armor of God so we're able to withstand the strategy and the schemes of our enemy, we need to know what those strategies are. And I want to make this as clear as possible so that you understand. And that's this. The scheme or the strategies of our enemy are threefold. Number one, this is what hinders the word of God. And this is what's going on here. What hinders the word of God or the word of truth to go out into the world. And that's this. Number one, his, his strategy always from the beginning has been to cast doubt upon the word of God. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, he said this, Surely God didn't say to you that you can't eat of that fruit. The first thing he did was want to cast doubt on the truth of God's word. Surely God doesn't mean what he says. The second thing is, he also would distort the word of God. In Matthew chapter 4, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he took the word of God out of context and did not apply it in the proper setting. So he would distort the word of God. The third thing is, he would attempt to deny access to God's word. Now, the question for you is this. How does he do that? Number one, distort the image of Christians. Distort the image of Christians. 
distort the image of Christians to the point that the world that we live in thinks that Christians are nothing but hate-filled people who are not compassionate, who have no love for other individuals as they struggle with their lives, who are filled with uh, some type of fanatic belief structure. And the bottom line is this, when the world sees that, they say this, if that's what Christians are all about and that's what the Bible's all about, I don't want to know them and I don't want to know the Bible. What other methods does he use? Uh, Sometimes it's just to have government agencies that will restrict uh, the preaching of the word of God. Government agencies that won't allow missionaries into their country. Government agencies that will not allow Bible teaching churches. Government agencies that won't allow people to have Bibles in their possession. Government agencies that will actually tell the pulpit what they're supposed to tell the people. That's the way that he hinders the access to the truth of God's word. Sometimes it's even much more subtle and dangerous, and it's the thing that probably concerns me more than anything, although all the rest of that may come to pass in this nation if we keep going the direction that we're going. There's going to come a day when you're not going to be able to say certain things from a pulpit, or you'll lose your, your, your um, uh, category or classification as a nonprofit organization, and we're heading that way. Some of you are shaking your head yes. Some of you don't have a clue, but I'm telling you right now that that's exactly the movement that's taking place in our country, where we will not allow have freedom of speech when it comes to the things of God, although we're going to say that we're really for free speech, but we're not if we speak in ways that disagree with what the majority of people hold to be true to their heart. Now, what's interesting is, and here's the most subtle thing, and here's what I want to close on this, and that's this. I've got a lot of friends, Linda, I have a lot of friends that live all over the country because of the ministry that we had working with athletes, and they end up going all over the place. Over the last couple of weeks, God has impressed this upon me in my conversations with them, and that is this. The thing that we like to do is follow up. Hey, are you involved in, in, a, in a good Bible teaching church? Are you involved? Are you plugged in? Are you in fellowship with other believers? Because that's where growth takes place. Bottom line is I hear this almost to every single person I talk to. Here's what I hear. I say, hey, you know, uh, how's a pastor? What kind of pastor you got? Here's what I hear. He's really nice, but. Now, inevitably, what follows is this. But he doesn't teach and preach the word of God. See, sometimes what happens is Satan will just take those who are in a position of authority and distract them either doing other duties that keep them away from the study and the preaching and teaching of God's word, make them comfortable in their position where they're comfortable with the position that they have, the title that they have, maybe the salary that they have, maybe the benefits or the retirement that's coming up. And so what happens is we hear these kind of things. Well, he's not offensive. He's really nice, but he doesn't teach the word of God. To which I immediately kind of just shake my head and shudder because it comes down to this. If you have an athlete who can't throw, run, pass, shoot, defend, hit a ball or pitch a ball or throw a ball, if he can't do any of that but he's nice, guess what? He's still unemployed. You may have the nicest people at your office, and some of you know that these are all these, he's nice or she's nice, but she doesn't or he doesn't do any work. Duh. How long does that go on? See, here's the problem that we have in our culture, and this is one of the subtle deceptions that hinder God's truth to go out to the people. What is the primary responsibility of a pastor of God or a shepherd of the flock? It is to teach. And to preach the word of God to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
And if a pastor doesn't want to preach and teach the word of God and commit himself to praying for his congregation, to pray that what he's teaching, teaching is truth from God's word, then the only thing, and I know this is so upsetting to some of you, but the only choice that he has is find another occupation and allow somebody else that will be committed and dedicated to teaching and preaching the word of God and truth to stand there and to preach the word of God. I mean, see, this is the problem that we have, and I know this is so upsetting to some people, but it's all over the place. And I'm so tired of hearing it. I'm tired of hearing, nice but. I'd rather hear that, you know what, he's not a real personable guy, but man, the guy preaches the word of God. He's not running for any office, boy, he just opens it up and he starts to preach and teach, and man, it's just like every time I hear it, I'm just, man, just the word of God goes out, and I am just so convicted about areas of my life that I'm wrong before God, I don't have a choice to fall on my knees and repent before God and to start doing what's right. Yeah, I wouldn't have him over to dinner, I'm afraid what he'd have to say when he came over, but you know what, I don't really care, the guy preaches the word of God. That's what a pastor's supposed to do. We're more concerned about how something is said in our culture today than what's said. Let me close with a true story. What's fascinating to me is this. We're more concerned, and, you think, and this is exactly what's going on in Washington, isn't it? We're more concerned about how something is said than what's being said. Have you ever noticed that no one has yet refuted any of the facts? The facts are the facts. We just don't like how you radical right-wing people said it. But he lied. Well, but we don't want to talk about that. But he obstructed justice. Well, but that's just your... Well, well, yeah, well... See, we're so concerned with how it's said, we don't deal with what is said. So there's a guy, he goes on vacation, he leaves his prize-winning cat with his brother. About a week goes by, the guy calls his brother in Europe and he says, Hey, Joe, um, how are you? Joe says, Hey, man, I'm having a great time in Europe. By the way, how's Fluffy? To which his brother responds, Your cat is dead. My cat is dead? I can't believe how callous and cold-hearted and you have no compassion at all. My cat is dead. Isn't there a better way that you could have said it? He goes, well, I don't know. He goes, well, here, you should have said this. That Fluffy got out and he got out on the roof of the house and he was chasing a bird. And then you could have called me back a couple of laters and said, well, while Fluffy was up on the roof chasing a bird, he slipped off the roof and he fell and he got hurt and you took him to the vet. Then you could have called me the next day and say, well, the vet said it doesn't look good, he operated, and it doesn't look good, but let's hold out hope. Then maybe another couple of days could have passed and you could have called me back and said, well, I'm sorry, I got bad news to you. Fluffy passed away. His brother goes, oh, okay. About two weeks go by, he has to call his brother again. He calls him, his brother in Europe. His brother says, hey, how's it going? His brother thinks for a second, oh, okay. Uh, how's the family? Uh, okay. Brother says, how's mom? And his brother thinks for a second, he goes, um, she's up on a roof chasing a bird. <laughs> oh. Listen to me as we close. I will make a commitment to you that I will not add to your confusion, but I will tell it exactly as the Word of God teaches it. And you will not be further confused. You know, it's like the old joke. I don't know what he said, but I sure like the way he said it. You know what? I want to know, I want to make sure that every person that spends the time that you, you do to come here and listen to the God's truth that you walk away understanding exactly what it is that God had to say to you through his word. I don't care if you vote for me or don't. Because as far as I remember, no one elected me to begin with. And I don't care if you yank my salary, because I don't get one. 
And the bottom line is this. I am committed to teaching and preaching the Word of God. And if you come, you're going to learn the truth from the Word of God. And I will make sure that you don't waste your time or the time of those that you invite to come with you. Because our world desperately needs to hear the truth. What have we learned today? I hope that we learn only two things. That Jesus Christ is King of Kings and He's Lord of Lords. He is majestic. He is royalty. He is pure. He is central in everything that God wants us to know about our relationship with God. That there is no other way to come to the Father but through Him. And I also hope to encourage you to spend some time alone with God so that you can develop the kind of intimate fellowship that He wants to have with you. He's waiting to hear from you. And it's not because He's too busy. It's because we just haven't made time. The Word of God says we all need to see striving and know that He's God. Father, we just thank You for Your Word that's so clear to us as we look at it. And we just thank You that we can rightly divide the Word of truth, that we have more information than Daniel did at the time that You gave this vision to him. What a wonderful picture of our resurrected Savior the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, standing in all of His splendor and all of His glory, the authority that, is, you have been, that has been given to Him by the Father, that every knee would bow of those who are on the earth and under the earth and in heaven, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's Lord to the glory of God. God, I just pray for those who don't know Jesus this morning, that Jesus Christ, the risen Savior that has died for our sins, that endured the pain, despised the shame for the glory that was set before Him. God, I just pray that as the men who were around Daniel didn't see him, that they would humble themselves, that they would be brokenhearted, and that they would come before your throne wanting to know Jesus Christ in all of his glory, the resurrected Savior that was able to conquer death and conquer sin. God, we just thank you that it's by grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from you so that none of us can ever boast. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. And we just look forward to what we'll have to learn in the, in the weeks to come as we conclude this series in Daniel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.